Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 24 through 6. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. La palabra se lee en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. No te hagas ningún ídolo ni nada que guarde semejanza con lo que hay arriba en el cielo, ni con lo que hay abajo en la tierra, ni con lo que hay en las aguas debajo de la tierra. No te inclines delante de ellos ni los adores. Yo, el Señor tu Dios, soy un Dios celoso. Cuando los padres son malvados y me odian, yo castigo a sus hijos hasta la tercera y cuarta generación. Por el contrario, cuando me aman y cumplen mis mandamientos, les muestro mi amor por mil generaciones. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if y'all are expecting me to preach in Spanish, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> but um, this is a good reminder. Uh, a lot of our community uh, here is Spanish-speaking. In fact, the high school that we serve is 50% Hispanic. And we want to love and serve all of our neighbors. It also reminds us that uh, our gospel is for every people group, every na nation, every language. Um, so, paying attention, we are walking through a series on the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two. Kind of want to recap why are we doing this series on the Ten Commandments. Um, I shared with you guys last week that in the, in the early church, when they were preparing somebody to be baptized, they went through three things. Three things. They went through the Apostles' Creed, they went through the Lord's Prayer, and they went through the Ten Commandments. This can be kind of summarized as follows. So if you think about the creed, that's, that's who God is and what he's done. All right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like history. Like, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. Think about creation, redemption, and how he sanctifies us in the present tense. You can look at the Lord's Prayer. That's what we ought to say to God. And we think about the Ten Commandments. What this points to is what does God expect us to do? How should we live? What are the things that are important to him? Yeah? This used to be the basics, the one, two, threes, the ABCs. And, and, and I want us to make sure that we have a solid foundation, that we're not confused, that it's not ambiguous what the Lord is calling us to do, but it's absolutely clear. And what we see in commandment two, one about no idols, it's a, it teaches us that God cares about how we worship, and that our worship is undivided. God cares about how we worship and that our worship is undivided. Let me ask the Lord for help. Lord, please help us to understand your word. Lord, Lord, please uh, open up our minds and our hearts to, to receive what you are going to speak to us today. And would you, by the Spirit, put this desire for obedience in us? 
Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we look at Exodus 20, verse 4. Uh, it says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Now, y'all was like, I probably wasn't about to do that this week. Is anybody about to make an idol? About to fa fashion something out of wood? If you did, we need to have a conversation if you are. But I, I don't think that was you this week. I don't think you were tempted to start cutting down trees in your yard and worshiping them. But here's the deal. What this teaches us is that God cares about how we worship. Now, context is important when we're reading anything, really. But when we're reading the scriptures, context is important. And so in the context of ancient Israel and, the, and, and Mesopotamia, it was not unheard of to make idols for objects of worship. So here's what you got to understand. That, might, that command might sound quite strange to us. We don't, we don't really feel tempted to go like make physical idols. But to the first hearers, they were like, well, that's what everybody does. All the religious people I know, if they are really sincere, if they really care about their God, they are going to go and make an idol. That is how we demonstrate that we love and serve our God. We go make something that represents him. So the Israelites, they could have developed their expectations of acceptable worship through the lens of the surrounding culture. I, we know this was a temptation because, because what happened, while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, look, while it's happening, he comes down the mountain and they build an idol. They're building a, a, a golden cow and says, that's the, that's the God that made us. Let's worship that thing. What, what this teaches us is that was, that, that was a common thing to do. It's strange to us, but it was a very acceptable way to worship in the culture in which they lived. And what God is saying, you, you don't get how you worship from your surrounding culture. You don't get how you honor me by how other people say you should. You get how to honor me from me. I will instruct you what I want. Now, I know what I'm about to say is kind of strange, but I don't like chocolate. I know that's weird. Get over it. All right, so I don't like chocolate. If you know me, you probably will know that. Now, if you know I don't like chocolate... And you say, oh, man, I should probably get him some chocolate. I'm like, I don't want that. You know that's not what I want. In a very similar way, God instructs us what he likes. So that when we want to bring something to him, it's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. He says, I want to be worshipped in these particular ways. And if we want to honor him and serve him, we go, well, we should probably listen to what he says because that's what he wants. We must be careful that we do not make God into the image of what our culture deems is acceptable. Our culture has acceptable ideas about God. I think in our present culture, it's cool that he's loving, not so cool that he, that he judges, right? We can't, we, can't, we can't get our ideas about who God is from our present culture. The, the irony is that in some cultures, it's the reverse. In other cultures, it's cool that he judges, but it's not cool that he loves. We cannot get our, what, what we deem is right from our culture. And then our culture has acceptable ideas about what God would expect us to do. You know, feeding the sick, helping the hungry, let's do that. What about sexual purity? I, nah, fam, ain't touching that. We cannot get our ideas about God from our culture. We cannot get our ideas about how to serve God from our culture. In fact, God is so loving and clear that he tells us exactly what he wants. If you look at the book of Exodus, if you ever if you're going through a Bible reading plan and you hit Exodus, it's like it's like a lot of story and it's really interesting. And then you hit about the middle of Exodus, 
and they start talking about rules and regulations about the temple, about the priesthood. And I'm sure if he was on that Bible reading plan, you got to be like, oh, snap. The story is gone. Rules and regulations. Listen, how the Israelites worshiped God, it was given to them by God, and it shaped how they approached God, how they viewed his character. So let's, I'll give you an example. One of the things that God instructed them to do is that on their way to the temple, as the priests would bring their prayers and their worship and their, their requests before God, God would have them sacrifice an animal. Sounds very strange and foreign to us, but this demonstrated something about God, that God is holy and that we are sinful. The things that God required them to do are not arbitrary. They teach them about the character of who God is. Now, we're not Israel. We don't worship under the, the old covenant, but God gave the church specific instructions on how he wants to be worshiped. It's not, it's not arbitrary. What we do on Sunday is not, I was just thinking about something to do. We wanted to search the scriptures and say, how do you, Lord, want to be worshipped? Because we don't want to just make something up and come to you. I'm going to give you a, a, little, a little, little phrase. I want you to say it back to me. Say, regulative principle. Yeah, remember that one. Put simply, the regulative principle states that the corporate worship of God is to be found founded on specific directives from the scriptures. Put another way, it says that nothing ought to be introduced in the gathered worship unless there is specific warrant from scriptures. In other words, we don't just make up what we do. If God cares about how he wants to be worshipped, then we should pay attention and look at the text to understand what he wants. So, so where, where, where do we get the ideas of what we do here at the church? You know, in, in, in Ephesians 5.19, it says that we ought to speak to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs. So why do we say a psalm every week? I want to make sure we're doing that thing. That, that we, are, we are obeying God how he demands and wants to be worshipped. That we are, are singing and speaking his word to one another. Why do, why do we do this, this confession and assurance? In 1 John it says, we read this a lot, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. Is a specific thing that we ought to do so that we would remember that we ought to confess our sins and that we would understand that it's not a guess about if he's going to forgive us, that we're reminded every Sunday that if we confess our sins, it's not that he might forgive us, but that he will. Or, or listen, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he says, first of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. For kings and for all those in authority. Now, I read that scripture one day, and I was like, we don't do that. But he straight up said that we should. How do we do that? That's why we do our prayers, because God commanded us. How do you pray for everybody? Well, there's one way we do it. It's not the only way. How do, how do, why do we pray for those in authority? Because God commanded us to do it. Or, or what about what it says in 1 Timothy 4, 13? Paul says to Timothy, another pastor, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. He's like, whatever you're supposed to do, Timothy, y'all need to read God's word aloud, and you need to explain it. Why do we do this thing? Because God commanded that we would do it. Why do we, I, I get this question quite frequently. Why do we do the Lord's Supper every week? Well, Jesus told us to. Jesus said, this is how I want you to remember me. And then Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink from the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 
So I don't have to be, I don't, I'm not like, well, Lord, what you want us to do? No, he said it. He clarified it. So if I, if I want to honor him, if he don't like chocolate, I'm not going to give him chocolate. If he says, this is what I want you to do, then we ought to do it. Why, why do we say, say this, this creed every week? Where, where does that come from? In Jude 1.3, it says, dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to all the saints. He's saying there's some truths that everybody receives and you need to remember. And there's an example. If you go in 1 Corinthians 14, there's an example of a proto-creed. It's just talking about the basics. There's a God. He loves us. He's the creator. He sent his son Jesus to die for us. And he sends the spirit and he creates this community called the church. We want to make sure that we don't bypass nor think that we graduated from the basics of the faith. We want, we want to make sure that we contend for what was given to us. Again, we, we, we have this uh, beautiful opportunity next week to celebrate baptism. Why do we do that? Because Jesus said to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now, why do we do a benediction? Well, if you go read any of Paul's letters, there's this thing at the end called a benediction. I don't know why well, he did it. We want to make sure that our worship is not just shaped by what we think is interesting or what scratches and itch or what somebody else thinks is cool. No, no. We want to worship God in a way that he has pres prescribed for us to do. Now, now, the beauty is that there's a lot of diversity in how you can do that. You know, at, at the end of the day, like, the reformers ask this question, what makes a church? What, how, how do you know you got a church? And they boiled it down to two things. They said, is the word of God preached? And all, do they do sacraments, baptism and communion? Now, it's beautiful on this Sunday, we can go to a lot of different parts of the world. We can go to Africa. We can go to Russia. We can go to South America. We can go to a lot of different places. And the church is going to look different. The songs might sound a little different. But one thing they is, they're going to do is they're going to preach the Bible. And they're going to take some communion. They're going to sing some songs. And they're going to pray for people. There's actually a lot of room for diversity in what it looks like lived out. But what is not negotiable is what is commanded that we ought to do. Now, now listen. God doesn't just arbitrarily give us things to do. How we worship shapes how we view God and how we understand what he wants from us. One time, I remember one time my, uh, we, we do some devotions. Most nights we do devotions as a family. And my son said, all right, I want you to pray. And so I just started praying about stuff. He said, no, 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 no. The ones we do at church. I was like, oh, like we got to pray for the, all the stuff. Like he, the, the way that we worship shaped how he thought about prayer. Yeah? I remember one time uh, someone came to me and, and they said, you know, no, why, why, do we, why do we say this creed? And I said, I want you to know the basics. I want you to know what's essential. And if somebody comes to you and starts telling you that something that's not in this is essential, and they start making a big deal about it, they wrong. And she goes, so you mean when somebody talks about money all the time? I say, yes. That is an example. How we worship shapes how we think about God and what he ought to do. I hope, if nothing else, that if you worship at our church, that you would understand that the scriptures are important. 
Why, why do we have time where we, we can like read the scriptures and say it to one another and explain the scriptures? Because we want to, to pride the fact that God has spoken to us in his word. And he explained to you. All right, so the first part of the text, how do we obey that? We say, well, we worship God in the way that he's prescribed. We don't just make stuff up. We look at the text and say, well, what do you want us to do? That's what we're going to do. Next, in verse 5, we get this idea that God wants undivided worship. Verse 5, it says, do not bow and worship to them, the, the idols, and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, different things hit people different ways, but I feel like when you hear the phrase jealous God, you're like, wait, 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 wait. Jealousy is a sin. God, how are you going to be jealous? What you mean? So let's break it down for a minute. God deserves our worship for two reasons. Probably a lot more, but for two. First is that he is the supreme being. But secondly, that he has made a covenant with us. See, listen. Is it wrong for God to want us to love and delight in him? Now, listen, if I came around and said, hey, man, what I, what I really want you to do is I want you to make much of me. Like, I want you to delight in me. I'm awesome. You really need to, like, you need to see what I got. You feel me? Listen, the reason that would be wrong is, one, that would be jealousy, but I'm not the supreme being. I'm not the fountain of joy. I'm not the one who bestows forgiveness. I'm not the, the, the one who gives you every single thing that you need. It would be wrong for me to demand that of you, but it would not be wrong for the one who gives you everything to demand your worship. Because God is a supreme being and the fountain of joy, listen, listen, it is a loving thing for him to want us to experience him. Like the things that, the things that we want, the, like, like the significance, uh, uh, the, the glory, the love, peace, forgiveness, uh, the things that we ultimately want are found in him. So it is an absolutely loving thing for him to say, you need to worship me because the things that you want, I can provide. And the, the craziest thing is, as you worship God, he begins to give more of himself to you. You experience the reality of who he is. It's not a selfish thing for him to want you to worship. It actually is loving to you because you get what your heart desires. So God deserves our, our worship because he's a supreme being, but he's made a covenant with us. Think, think of how God and Christ humbled himself for us, how he put on flesh, how, how, how he endured the, 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 the nasty words, the beatings, and ultimately the cross for us. This self-giving love is worthy of our complete devotion. Another idea about a covenant is, is like we, we, we made an agreement, like we're we going to be together. Now, it wouldn't be weird if, if I, as a husband, was jealous for my wife. That's appropriate. We made a covenant. We're together. Don't be looking crazy at my wife. We got problems. Listen, God and Christ has made a covenant with you. It is not inappropriate. In fact, it's, it's, it, it would be weird if he didn't care about what you did. I bought you with my own blood. I, I loved you. We, we are in this covenant that lasts forever. Yeah, I'm jealous. And that, that jealousy in that context is appropriate. All right. Let's, let's get into idolatry. What does that mean? What is idolatry? 
So that's, that's what the, the commandment is about. Idolatry, according to the catechism that we use for our kids' sermon, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. In other words, to serve someone or something in God's place is called idolatry. So, so what exactly can be an idol? Now, in the text, it was like, you know, people cutting down trees and making idols. Like, well, that's an idol. That, that's, that's very clear, yeah. But ultimately, anything that God created can be an idol. Now, here's the interesting thing. Trees were made for your good. You know biology, like it helps you breathe, right? It's not like God made trees to trip you up. He didn't make trees like, <laughs> make an, that's not what he's doing. He, he made something for your good. He made something for the good of people. Then people took that created good and they elevated it and made it ultimate. Now, we, we probably aren't tempted to go cut down trees and make, make an idol, but we certainly are tempted uh, in making something good ultimate. Yeah? It is a good thing for you to want to provide financially for your family. That is a good thing. It is an honorable thing. But at the same time, money become an, can become an idol if it dominates everything you think about. If, if it's what you look to for your hope and happiness, that good thing that can be used to serve your family has become an idol. Yeah? It's a, it's a good thing. The same thing could be said, said of, of sex. Sex is a gift from God. intended to be experienced in the marriage covenant. It is a good thing. But if you make it ultimate, and you begin to to let your desire for sex determine everything that you want to do, then it becomes an idol. Listen, children are a gift from God. We ought to love and serve our children. But, But if we begin to get our hope and happiness and significance and security from our children, we have taken something that is good and have made it an idol. According to Apostle Paul, idolatry actually is the root of all sin. Romans 125, it says, it says, it's talking about how sin enters the world. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. What, what do they do? They worship and serve what was created rather than the creator. They took something that was meant to be good and they made it ultimate. See, our, our idolatry really is, 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 is disordered desire. I want to take the time to explain that. Listen, desires must exist in a hierarchy for, for them to serve us and others correctly. Let me make a point. Let me make a point. One can desire to love and Provide for the children. They can desire good rest and sleep. There's a lot of things you could desire, but but the, the, the thing is that your desires come in conflict with one another sometimes. Yeah? So my desire to sleep might, might actually fight my desire to go to work. And in that moment, I have to have some sort of system, some sort of grid to know, well, which desire do I pick? Now, now if, if God is at the top of my desires... He rightly orders the rest of them so that I can make, make decisions when my desires are conflicting. That is fundamentally what you're doing when you are resisting temptation. 
You got a desire for something, and then you got a desire to obey God. And your desires are in conflict. And when your desire for that thing, that sin, overtakes your desire to love and serve God, your desires are not rightly ordered. And it wreaks havoc in your life. See, he dictates through his word and spirit which desires should supersede others. And Jesus makes some pretty significant claims about where he should be in your hierarchy of desires. He says stuff like, if you don't hate your mommy and your daddy, you can't come follow me. Whoa, Jesus, dang. Like, what he's saying is your earthly relationship, the, the, your, 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 your commitments, they, they are important, they are good, but compared to your affection and allegiance, to me, they have to look like hatred. That's how far above your allegiance to me should be. Now, here's the craziest thing. If you do love Jesus, you will treat your family well. Because he dictates that you should. But if I, if I move something that's created and I move it above God, that is a recipe for disorder. So it actually is a good, a good practice that, that when you find yourself struggling with sin, ask yourself, what is it that I really want? What am I searching for? Sometimes we're, we're sinning because we're, we're searching from, for some sort of acceptance. Yeah? We want to feel, we want to feel that, that, that others like us. But then, then we can, Paul can say, actually, I can find a far better acceptance in Christ, who loves me regardless of what I've done. A good practice. What is it that, that I want? And, and are my desires, are they rightly ordered? Is, is God at the top? And, and, and am I asking him to help me sift through the things that I want? Now in verse 5, we, we learn that there are long-term consequences of idolatry. Says, do not bow and worship them, to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, sin has consequences on our family and our close relationships. The idea is, is that if you, if you live to a regular ripe old age, you, you'll probably see a third or fourth generation. The idea is this, is that your sin is going to directly affect your family and those close to you. Because sin creates a, a particular kind of environment. I don't know if you've ever walked into a room and people have been arguing. And like they stop arguing. But you, you feel something, right? You like, you, you, like, it's, it's like you, 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 there's a tension, there's an anger, there's a frustration. And even though they might have stopped arguing, you walk in the room, you're like, hmm, what y'all do? Back on out. Now, like, like, it, it goes to show that, that sin creates a particular type of environment that rubs off on you, that, 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 that actually determines what you think is right and appropriate, what is normal. So, beloved, one of the reasons to fight sin and idolatry is so that you would love those who are close to you well. That, that the, the environment that exists around you would be reflective of Christ. And not only this, let's just, let's just keep it 100. Sinful character does get handed down. 
you're just like your daddy. Now, sometimes that's good, depending on who your daddy is. You know, like you know, like sometimes it's bad. You know, but here's the deal. Here's the deal, and I and I think that's a mixture of nature and nature and nurture. It's a mixture of both, I think. That that what we do, it affects those whom we love the most. Now, now oh, I need to say this. Now, now. What's beautiful about the gospel is that, that God gives us a new family and a new lineage and a new character and a new nature. But we would be naive to think that what has happened before us doesn't affect us. Yeah? And so maybe for some, some of you, you're, gonna go, you, you're saying, nah, okay, we're going to put a line in the sand. We're going to stop <laughs> right now. So that those coming after me would experience goodness in Jesus. You know, there, there, I just got done reading uh, through First Samuel, I'm in Second Samuel, the story of King David. And King David is, is painted as a really good dude. Y'all, he's jacked up, actually. But one thing that is interesting is I'm in, I'm in a part of the story where his children are affected by his sin. One of his, his two biggest sins, King David, two biggest sins, anger and murder and sex. And then if you read the story of his children, that is, that is what is tripping them up too. It's a crazy story. You can read it one day. See, what, what happens is, is, is he has one son and has, has a daughter. They're, they're half brother and sister. And the son lo- like really likes the daughter, loves her, and then ends up, ends up uh, deceiving her and, and sexually assaulting her. And then the, another son named Absalom says, well, I'm going to kill that dude. This pain and destruction, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came from the culture, the environment, the nature, and the nurture of David. What we do matters. Now, that's not the only thing he says. Verse 6 is it's more, it's a lot lighter, right? What does he do? He shows faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God blesses true worship. And, and listen, listen, the ramifications of true, humble, heartfelt worship last way longer than the effects of sin. God remembers those who trust him by blessing their offspring. What's interesting is when you look at, at the, the pattern of Israel, like it's like this it's like a of thing. Israel, they'll worship God, and then they'll start having idolatry and stuff. And what, one of the, the constant refrains is that, that, that the scripture will say, and the Lord remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham. Sometimes that's like hundreds of years ago. And yet the Lord still remembers it. Listen, listen, the ramifications for worshiping God, we cannot even see. That's how far they go. There is long-term good that comes from serving God. And we can never know the full extent of how our worship of the one true God can bless others. But we have this promise in the text. Worship of God, it leads to service to our neighbors. And what's interesting is we don't, sometimes there's a really direct correlation. Like, I went to go share the gospel with that guy, and then he got saved or something like that. What's interesting is not, there's not a direct correlation in these days. He said, you worship me, you love me, and I will make it so that those who come after you 
will be subject of my love. Oh, that's a beautiful promise. You know, Jesus is the only one who fulfills the Ten Commandments strictly. Yeah? Because if, if we look at our doubt, have I, have I, have I worshipped God and, and, and sought to serve him in a way that he didn't prescribe? Yeah. Have I made created things ultimate? Yeah. I'm in trouble. Yet Jesus worshipped God purely and with an undivided heart. In Hebrews 10, he says, it says that, that from the psalm, it says, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. It's coming from the mouth of Jesus. The perfect worship and obedience of Christ. That's what brings us to God. See, Jesus worshiped the Father in the way he prescribed and worshiped God with an undivided heart. And what's interesting is that happened like 2,000 years ago. Remember that promise from verse 6? His faithfulness, his love is having ripple effects on us because he includes us in his family. Look, some of y'all might have got real discouraged when we were talking about that generational sin thing, but I want you to be encouraged because your primary family is the one in heaven. Your primary family is the fact that God is your father and Jesus is your older brother and he has done everything that needs to be done in order to please God and all the blessings that come to him rub off on you. That, that is the good news that we have today. See, God blesses us for Jesus' sake. He shows his faithful love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That's Christ Jesus, and we belong to him, and his faithfulness is still being poured out on us. You know, we, we talked about that, that, that one of the things that the second commandment teaches us is that, that it, God, it matters how we approach God. It matters how we worship God. What we learn from the scriptures, ultimately, Jesus is the way to God. He is the, the path, the means. We, we cannot approach God in a way that he did not command. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we approach God? What is the methodology? We approach him through Christ, through his death and resurrection, through his Marriage. We can't approach him through any other mediator. We can't approach him through, through, through any great person that has lived. It is through Christ alone. We can't approach him with our own works and righteousness. We can't approach him thinking, oh, I had a good week this last week, so you accept me. No, we have to approach him through Christ. We approach based on Christ and his righteousness, and God finds that acceptable. Now, let's, let's get into the nitty-gritty. How, how, how do we seek to observe the second commandment? First thing is that we, we repeatedly come to the means of grace. If God has laid out how he wants to be worshipped, then we should just do it <laughs> and be faithful and consistent in it. I think, I think a lot of times, um, one of the things that, that prevents people from being faithful and diligent in worship and maybe even and personal spiritual discipline is because they're, they're expecting it to like wow them every time. Okay? Like, you know, the Holy Ghost fell and I fell on the floor or something like that. All right? They, they're expecting that. 
But but I, I want you to think more like that that worshiping God is 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 like eating food. Now sometimes you can have a really ballin' steak, and, and sometimes you got some pizza beans. But you, you got to eat it, like, <laughs> and and you'll find that over time it sustains you. Over time it shapes you. Listen, listen. God has prescribed the way that He wants to be worshipped, so let's be frequent in how we use those means. I want I want my mind to be shaped by Him. I want my heart to be shaped by Him. I want my whole life to be shaped. And he goes, hey, here's the path. Come to me. These are the means that I've prescribed. And secondly, how we could obey the second commandment is that we could have some serious self-examination and ask ourselves, have we made some created good the ultimate good? Is there something in my life? It, like, if you ask yourself this question, what is my life oriented around? That, what, what, what is at this? Like, like if somebody were not in my head, but they were just observing my life, what would they say my life is centered around? Doing some honest self-examination and allowing the Lord to gently and mercifully point out to you when you are committing idolatry, when you are making something that he gave you as a gift, the ultimate good, and say, Lord, I don't want to mess up my life with disordered desires. I don't want to jack up my family with disordered desires. I, I, I want to live in a way that honors you. So search me that I might honor you appropriately. And beloved, when you fail, because you, you will, you praise the Father because Jesus has honored God fully on our behalf. He is the one who has never committed idolatry. So we can go straight to the Father through him. And he gives us strength to want to obey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I, I pray that you would examine us, Lord, by the Spirit. And Lord, if we have made some created good ultimate, would you point that out to us? Lord, when, when you convict us, you, you don't do it in such a way as to, 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 to blast us, but Lord, you gently bring correction. So, Lord, would you just gently bring correction to us this morning and as we ponder this word? Because, Lord, we want to have a rightly ordered life. We want to have, have desires that, that reflect your word. We want to worship you properly. So you, in your gentleness and mercy, would you help us?